Glad you're here with us this morning. Welcome to Fellowship 3 downstairs as well. We are, uh, of course, remembering this weekend, Memorial Day weekend, that this world would look a whole lot differently if it weren't for the tens of thousands of Americans who sacrificed their life to make a difference. Where would this world be? What would it look like? People died to preserve or promote, at least, peace on this earth, freedom. And yet, uh, you look at things in the world today, and in spite of all those sacrifices and all that, uh, all that was given over the decades of time, uh, this world is a mess. This world's a mess. We've been studying the book of Isaiah. And throughout the book of Isaiah, we are uh, reminded over and over again that God does have a plan, however, to bring about complete righteousness and holiness and His justice and His peace, His shalom on this earth. He has a plan that one day, a glorious day, He is going to make everything right. And throughout our study of the book of Isaiah, we've seen such things or such such verses as Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Remember this? A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on, and forevermore. A day's coming. Or, chapter 11, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear but with righteousness he will judge the poor. He will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Righteousness, justice, it's coming. Or chapter 32, behold, a king will reign righteously, and princesses will rule justly when the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is, um, is considered as a forest. And then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field. And the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence forever. Have we ever seen a day like this? No. Or chapter 46, listen to me. Listen to me. You who are stubborn-minded and far from righteousness. That's such a great, that's a pastoral, that's a verse pastors love to write. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay, and I will grant salvation to Zion and my glory for Israel. Or chapter 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. 
Look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion, and her wilderness he will make like Eden. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. We live in a world where war after war will never fully succeed in bringing about justice and freedom from oppression, the end of sinful hearts. It doesn't happen. But one day, God is going to make it happen when His righteousness and His justice and His peace comes to this world. And in the final chapters of the book of Isaiah, we see this theme of God's righteousness and and justice and, and peace crescendo in this hope and joy. And there's, there's just such vibrant emotion in these final chapters of Isaiah. They speak of this coming glory of the Lord, like chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is the, the root of Jesse. This is the branch springing from Jesse that we saw in chapter 11. This is this, is this one talking. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. It's coming. There's a favorable year of the Lord that's coming. And later in that chapter, verse 10 and 11, he said, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, as the garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Never happened before, but it's coming. It's coming. Chapter 62, verse 1, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. There is a coming day of incredible rejoicing and praise and hope that this world has never seen if we take these verses at face value. If we take them as inspired scripture, something is coming. But as we saw last week, there's also a day of vengeance that's coming. A day when the, when the thrice holy God, holy, holy, holy God will trample out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He will loose the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword because his truth goes marching forth as Julio Wardhouse wrote in the Battle Hymn of the Republic. It's coming. It's a day that's coming. So what do you do, what do you do when you're faced with such, such awe-filled, 
wonderful expectation in light of the, the horrendous, sinful world in which we live, what do you do in anticipation of this glorious coming day? Well, what Isaiah did, the prophet, is he prayed. He prayed. It's a model prayer that we're going to look at this morning in chapter 63 of Isaiah. Take your Bibles and turn there with me. A model prayer for all believers longing for that day of righteousness, longing for that day when the grapes of wrath stored up are going to be loosed as the day of vengeance comes and God destroys everything sinful and then reigns supreme on this earth according to the promises laid out in Isaiah. Isaiah breaks forth in prayer. And starting in verse 7, in the first part of this prayer, he recalls the past faithfulness of God. He starts his prayer, this introduction to this prayer, with a, Lord God, I remember you're a God of great kindness. Lord God, I remember you are a God of compassion. Look at verse 7. I read here from the New American Standard Version. I shall make mention of the loving kindnesses, and that's a plural. I will make mention of the multiple loving kindnesses of Jehovah, Yahweh the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the, the abundance of his loving kindnesses. And a number of weeks ago, we looked at that word. It's that uh, wonderful Hebrew word, chesed, which means the loyal love, the consistent, forever loyal love of God, a love that will never fade away. And Isaiah says, I'm going to recall, I'm going to recount, I'm going to remember the faithfulnesses, the loving kindnesses of God. Verse 8, for he said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he, he became their savior. And in all their affliction, verse 9, he was afflicted. And he, he looks back now into the history of Israel. It's a wonderful verse, isn't it? In all their affliction, he, Jehovah God, was afflicted. He hurt when they hurt. And the angel of his presence saved them. Another interesting phrase. Some of your translations may say, the angel of his face. That's what it says literally. The angel that's before his face. The angel of his presence. This is, a, I think, a reference to the, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. He saved them. And in his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and he carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and they grieved his Holy Spirit. And by the way, we have the Trinity in this passage, do we not? Jehovah God, Yahweh, the angel in his presence, the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, and now the Holy Spirit, not some impersonal force, but the third person of the Trinity. And Isaiah is saying, we, your people, your, your special people, we grieved his Holy Spirit and he turned himself to become their enemy, and he fought against them. Verse 11, but then his people remembered the days of old, of Moses, where, 
Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness, they did not stumble. As a cattle, verse 14, which go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. His loyal love, his many kindnesses, in spite of their sinfulness, in spite of their grieving the Holy Spirit, God led them victoriously in his mighty power. But Isaiah continues, and he speaks to the Lord himself now in this prayer, the last part of verse 14. So you led your people to make yourself a glorious name, Oh, God, you did this, and I remember it in the past. But, God, where are you now? And that's the second part of this prayer. But, Lord God, where are you today? Where is this righteousness and this justice that you've been telling me for several decades of my life, Isaiah's writing as this old prophet now? I've heard it over and over again. Righteousness is coming. Justice is coming. God's wonderful plan of forgiveness and wholeness and and shalom is coming. But where is it? Verse 15. Look down from heaven and see your holy and glorious habitation, or from your holy and glorious habitation, and where are your zeal? Where, Where are your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassions are... They're restrained toward me. Where is it, God? Verse 16, for you, you are our father. Though Abram doesn't know us, Israel doesn't recognize us. The, 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 the ancient fathers of, all, of old, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, if they were to look at us, your people today, they wouldn't even recognize us. But, but God, where are you? Look down, get involved with us once again. You, O Lord, you're our Father. You're our Redeemer from of old. That is your name. So, verse 17, why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our hearts from fearing you? (laughs) What? (laughs) Isaiah is saying, Lord God, if you showed up in your glory as you've promised, and you bring about your righteousness on this earth, it's going to change us. We are a wayward, sinful people. We're grieving your heart, oh God. And you've promised to show up, and you're going to show up in in holiness and righteousness. But look at us. We're sinful people. Lord God, if you don't show up, we, we have no hope. Return, last part of verse 17. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have have, have trodden it down. We've become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who were not called by your name. And in this fascinating verse is this prophet Isaiah speaking, as it were, a hundred some years after his life is over anticipating these 
Jewish people taken off into exile in Babylon some 100, 120 years after he died. He's speaking, as it were, for them. And now their words are, but look, look, God, your sanctuary, your people possessed it for a little while, but the adversaries have trodden it down. The Babylonians came and, and, and destroyed Jerusalem, burned the city to the ground, destroyed the, the holy sanctuary. Lord God, I remember your past kindness and compassions. But Lord God, where, where are you today? Look down, Lord. Look down. We need your hand of power and compassion once again. And then, starting in chapter 64, the third part of his prayer is this prayer where he says, Oh God, we're sinners who desperately need you. We need you to show up again. Look at verse 1 of chapter 64 and understand the emotion in which this is given. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. Oh, God, tear apart the heavens. Not only look down, verse 15 of the previous chapter, but now come down. Tear apart the heavens. Make your presence know, like, like fire burning up that which is useless. Come down, Father. We need you to show up in power once again. Look at verse 4. For from of old they have not heard nor perceived by ear. Neither has the eye seen a God beside you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry for we sinned. We continued in them for a long time. And shall we be saved? For all of us, verse 6, have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like are like filthy, dirty garments, and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind. It takes us away. And there's no one, verse 7, who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and delivered us into the power of our iniquities. We are sinners, Isaiah is pleading. We desperately need you to show up. God, we cannot continue on. You've got righteousness at your hand. Where is it? Show up. You've got holiness. We need it. We're sinners. Our iniquities have overpowered us. We need your presence to overpower us. Come down. Tear apart the heavens. Reveal yourself. Where are you, God? Isaiah's final plea and request that leads to this. So, Father, don't destroy what you've created, but make your presence known again. Look at verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are, we are the clay. You are our potter. All of us are the work of your hand. And these very... It's, it's rather rare in the Old Testament to see God 
viewed as the father. But here, Isaiah, in these tender words, with all this emotion, oh, father, I mean, you, you have formed us. You're, you're the potter. We're just clay. Verse 9, do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Neither remember iniquity forever. Lord, as our father, if you don't do something, there's no hope. Please, don't remember our iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. Verse 10. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you, it's been burned by fire, and all our precious things have become a ruin. And again, Isaiah's writing this prophetically. Yes, in his day, he saw the Assyrians come, the massive armies of the Assyrians, that they had already destroyed the northern tribes of Israel. They were gone. Isaiah lived through those days when those Assyrian armies surrounded Jerusalem and Judea, wiping out some of the communities and, and villages around Jerusalem. And then, as we saw in chapter 39 months ago, then the, the angel of the Lord came. And in that miraculous moment, 186,000 Assyrians were destroyed, and God delivered Jerusalem intact. The city remained, the, the temple remained, but now Isaiah looks ahead and in this prophetic utterance, he sees the, the city gone and ruined, the, the temple destroyed. He speaks now, as it were, for those people in Babylonian captivity. Oh, God, we have deserved this. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. Anything good that we do cannot compare to your righteousness. We need you. Come down. And save us as our sinners. You're our father. You're the potter. We're just the clay. Put an end to sin. Let your presence be known again. Verse 12. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? In this prayer of Isaiah... He is very possibly now at the end of his life, this prophet who prophesied for almost 60 years. And then he looks back. He's been exposed time and time again to those divine revelations given to him. A child will be born. A son will be given. There will be no end to the increase of his government. On the throne of his father David, he will reign. The king of righteousness will come, and he will bring justice. He will bring peace. He will bring everlasting joy. And Isaiah's heard it over and over and over again. A day of vengeance is coming, God says, and I will put an end to all sin and corruption. And he's heard it over and over and over again. The decades roll on, and God renews those, those promises in, in chapters 60 and 61 and 62, as, as Dennis McNutt shared so eloquently a few weeks ago. Something glorious is going to come, and Isaiah says, but when, Lord? Look down and see us, you, the faithful God of the past, 
Come down, O God, and bring righteousness and justice. Do what you said you were going to do. We need your presence, not your silence. Come down, God. This passage this morning is a look into the, the heart of this prophet who so yearns and longs for this day. It's a passage that instructs us how to pray. As we look at the, the evil of our day, as we read the newspapers and listen to the news and realize the, the, the sadness of a world gone mad. And we read God's Word and the prophet Isaiah, and like Isaiah himself, do we long and yearn for the day of righteousness, the day of vengeance that will come? Do we pray longingly, passionately for the coming of the Lord? There's so many things that we could, I think, bring out and apply from this passage, but on this day I just want to direct us to this one thing. Is within our hearts this cry, like Isaiah's, Oh, God, come down. We need your presence. Fulfill what you said you were going to do. 2,700 years ago, this old prophet Isaiah, that was his prayer. That was the heartbeat. Come down, Lord. And if anybody should be praying that prayer, it should be we as believers today because you know what? We're 2,700 years closer to that coming of the Lord. And we see all throughout the, the New Testament the same longing, and you, you see it in the hearts of the people who wrote in the New Testament, like the last chapter in the book of the Bible, Revelation 20, the second to the last verse in the Bible. John writes, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. And then John breaks out and he says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I long for your plan of the ages to be fulfilled. Or Paul, he tells Titus that grace instructs us that we should be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. He commends the Thessalonian church that they were, they were waiting for, his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Good for you, Thessalonians. You're, you're waiting, you're longing, you're... You're expecting him to come. Jude wrote his fellow believers, and he exhorted them this way, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Paul wrote to the Roman believers. He said, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our body. One of the last things the great apostle Peter wrote in his second epistle, he said, we are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. 
Oh, he longed for it. He yearned for it. And is that not what Jesus said? Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Jesus says, be ready. Anxiously wait so that when you hear the knock, you're, you're not coming from the back room. You're right there by the door. You're going to open it. Anxiously longing and waiting because deep in your heart you've been praying, oh, Lord, come. Come. We need you. Paul wrote this in Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Oh, God, come. We eagerly long for, we eagerly await that day when the, the heavens will be torn apart and our Lord will come and descend, and we wait. Or do we? Randy Elkhorn wrote, being oblivious to eternity leaves us experts in the trivial and novices in the significant, and so we major on the momentary and we minor on the momentous. Oblivious of eternity, we become experts of the trivial. I know what the stock market ended on Friday. If I recall right, it was up 95.22 points. Trivial! I read the papers, I understand. I saw the tweets of our president. Trivial! I read what Putin said. Trivial! But we get caught up, caught up in the things of this world, in the momentary, and we forget the momentous, Elkhorn writes. Malcolm Muggeridge once observed, the only ultimate tragedy we can experience on earth, the only ultimate tragedy we can experience on earth is to feel at home here. And so the question is that, is there a yearning and a longing for the coming return of the Lord and His glorious kingdom here on earth that will be established or is that being drowned out by the trivial things that we get so exercised over in the things of this life? It was C.S. Lewis who said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you'll get neither. You see, when we begin to anxiously wait for the Lord's return, and it becomes so much a part of of, of our understanding and, and our thought process and just expectantly yearning for that glorious day of righteousness and justice and peace, it begins to impact our prayer life. And we cannot help but say, 
Oh, God, look down and come down. And everything that you said, as you even led us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Tear apart the heavens, Lord, and come down. And what, and what does that look like? When we become so uh, enamored by this and so it, it becomes so central in our thinking, what does it look like? It looks like a, a mother, a young mother of four who is married to an alcoholic who doesn't take care of his family. And in spite of the pain that she's living in, there is this confidence and even joy in her heart because even though she's living in a painful today, she is so expected and longing for the tomorrow. She can endure it for his glory. It looks like a man who's living with a disability in great pain, and every day he gets up is another day of pain. But in his heart, he praises God, and he can sing, it is well with my soul, even though it's not with his body. Because you see, his today of pain is being shaped by the tomorrow of glory. And every day he gets up and he says, oh God, come down. I long for you. It's like a, a young business person who's recently received a, a massive um, pay raise and promotion, but instead of raising his standard of living, he raises his standard of giving because he's not going to be enamored by the trivial because his today is being impacted by the coming glory of tomorrow. It looks like a couple who are just graduated their last kid a few weeks ago or a coming week from high school. They're now going to be empty nesters. And instead of scheduling more vacations for themselves, they sign on to assist in some inner city work to make a difference in people's lives. Why would they do that? Because they're not going to be caught up in the trivial, in the momentary, in the temporary. They're going to be caught up in the eternal. When we really begin to understand God's coming glory for eternity, His coming day of redemption and His coming day of vengeance, when the things that we've been studying from the book of Isaiah really begin to grip us in the reality, yes, it should cause us to just long all the more like Isaiah. Oh, Lord. Oh, chapter 64, verse 1, the emotion. Oh, rend the heavens and come. And when that begins to capture our life, and we cry out to Him in that kind of prayer, we'll begin to think more eternally, less temporally. We'll begin to live more by faith, less by sight. We'll begin to treasure the eternal and not treasure the temporal. And so the question is, are we longing like Isaiah longed? Is it part of our prayer life? Lord, today, today come. And that longing for His presence 
and his eruption of glory on this earth as he has promised. It becomes so real to us that we just can't help but pray, oh, Lord Jesus, come. I'm going to give us an opportunity to do that right now. Maybe you haven't prayed for the Lord's return in a long time. As a congregation of people right now, I want you to bow your head, close your eyes in the silence of your own heart before Greg comes and lead us corporately in prayer. Would you just silently before the Lord cry out to him, Lord, rend the heavens. Come now, Lord Jesus. Come.